Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be bringing you part 11 of the case of serial killer Willie Picton in Vancouver, Canada. Let's get right to it. Once again, I'll be referencing Stevie Cameron's book, On the Farm, Robert William Picton and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women, for much of this episode. Investigative journalist slash author Stevie Cameron covered the Picton case extensively. I can't recommend enough that you pick up a copy of her book. Let's pick up right where we left off. It was May of 1999, and after a memorial service for the missing women, a $100,000 reward was finally offered. Information wasn't pouring in just yet. It was more like a slow trickle, but it was starting to come in. According to the file review by the Vancouver Police in Picton's case, on May 29, 1999, a man had threatened to assault a sex worker. According to the sex worker, this man had tried to pick her up in New Westminster and then threatened to assault her if she refused. The encounter had bothered her so much, she reported it to a new Westminster police officer just days later on June 1st. She described the man as having a creepy smile and stated that she felt he wanted to devour her in an evil way. New Westminster police showed her a photo lineup and she immediately identified Robert Willie Picton as the man who had tried to pick her up. Her words were chilling then, but in light of what is now known about Picton, I'm not sure I've ever read anything more terrifying. Days later, on June 4th of 1999, it was reported by the Vancouver Sun that two new homicide investigators were being added to Project Amelia, and further, they were consulting with other agencies, including those who had investigated the Green River Killer but they still insisted there was no evidence to suggest a serial killer was at work. I don't think I'll ever understand the unwillingness to admit publicly even the possibility that a serial killer was operating in their jurisdiction. I mean, the first step to solving a problem is admitting you've got one, and they sure enough had a problem on their hands. While VPD drug their feet in admitting it publicly, a lot of investigative work was going down behind the scenes. By June 16, 1999, criminal profiler with RCMP Keith Davidson had conducted a case assessment of the missing women investigation from 1995 to 1999, which consisted of profiles for 21 of the missing women, a possible profile of the suspect, and further, recommendations for investigative strategies. This assessment was given to Jeremy Fields, who was in charge of Project Amelia. The assessment included Davidson's belief that all of the missing women were victims of a single sexually motivated offender. All of the women were transported out of the downtown east side by vehicle, 
and all of the women's bodies were disposed of with the express purpose of preventing discovery. As far as investigative suggestions, Davidson listed multiple, most notably that investigators should maintain continual contact with sex workers on the downtown east side, they should identify other women who may have been victims of the same offender, obtain any and all video surveillance available from where sex trade workers usually encounter customers, and consult with missing person and homicide analysts to provide further analysis and determine if any of the known murders could be linked to the missing women. Constable Lori Schinner knew there was no way with the small team she had work in the case that she and the team would be able to effectively follow Davidson's suggestions. So in late June of 99, she requested at least six additional investigators. There was some talk back and forth about resources, and an officer who had been injured and was on light duty and two constables one from drug enforcement, his name was Cruz, and one from the coordinated law enforcement unit, James, were loaned to Project Amelia. It was a far cry from the six additional investigators they were seeking, and later the two constables on loan would become a problem themselves. You see, James and Cruz already had a suspect in mind, and it wasn't Willie Picton. They were convinced that a man named Barry Thomas Niedermeyer was responsible, and he did make a good suspect. He had already been arrested and charged in April with 14 counts of assault, sexual assault, kidnapping, robbery, administering a noxious substance, and unlawful confinement. James and Cruz thought that he could be responsible for the missing and possibly even some of the murdered women in various areas around Vancouver. A search warrant had been obtained for his home, but no evidence linking him to any of the women had been found, and he had denied all involvement. But that wasn't enough to convince James and Cruz. According to the file review, they were more convinced than ever as a result of his body language through his interrogation that he was responsible, and they were very vocal about it. Niedermeyer was later convicted of several offenses stemming from that April arrest and sentenced to five years in prison. While James and Cruz had their eyes fixed solely on Niedermeyer, the rest of Project Amelia was looking square at Willie, and an informant was about to come forward with information that would only further implicate him. In mid-July of 1999, an informant contacted the Port Coquitlam RCMP, claiming to have information about Vancouver's missing women. Investigators met with the informant and were told that he believed Willie Picton had murdered a sex worker on his farm in Port Coquitlam between February and April of 99, and that a female had been present but didn't play an active role in the homicide or disposal of the remains. This story sound familiar? Over several meetings, this informant would give investigators more and more disturbing information about Willie Picton. He described the farm and Willie's trailer to a T, and then told the officer all about how Willie slaughtered his pigs at night, further stating that Picton truly enjoyed and, quote, gets off killing things. He went on to describe the relationship between Lynn Ellingson and Willie Picton, saying it was strange, the pair lived together but were not boyfriend-girlfriend, 
and Lynn just stayed there, sleeping in a separate room from Willie. The informant said that Lynn had confided in him and told him that after Willie's throat had been slashed by a sex worker in Vancouver a few years back, he had a hatred for, quote, prostitutes, and it was payback time. He went on to give pretty much the same story Lynn Ellingson had given to her friends and later on the stand, adding only one disturbing detail, stating at one point the woman screamed and called out to Lynn for help from Willie's bedroom, but she didn't go in the room. And further, that since Lynn had left Willie's trailer, she had been extorting him for money in exchange for her silence on what she had witnessed. The informant had stayed at Willie's trailer for a week in April of 1999 and observed the following. A pair of handcuffs underneath Picton's bed, night vision equipment, a semi-automatic rifle and clip, two wigs which he claimed Picton himself actually showed to him, one blonde and the other possibly a red or brown. Picton told him that he wore them when he went downtown to pick up women. With information coming in, at the end of July 1999, the Missing Women Investigation Team met and discussed strategies to form a joint investigative force. Port Coquitlam RCMP would be responsible for the homicide investigation at the Picton Farm if the information received from the informant could be verified, and it seemed this was an urgent matter of business. Undercover operation plans, surveillance, all of that was discussed and they would continue to extract further information from the informant. It seemed as if something was finally going to get done. Surveillance was set up, and between VPD and RCMP, someone was pretty much constantly watching Willie. Investigators with Project Amelia began collecting DNA, fingerprints, and dental records of the women living in the downtown east side. In the event their bodies were found, they could be identified. Can you imagine lining up to give your DNA just in case you were to disappear like so many of their friends had vanished before them? That was the current situation for the women of the downtown east side. Investigators had another conversation with their informant on July 30, 1999 at the Port Coquitlam RCMP detachment. Some information was followed up on and clarified, and new details emerged. The informant disclosed that during his stay on the farm, cockfights were taking place in one of the barns, during the summer, every weekend, and once a month during the rest of the year. Upwards of 40 people would come to place bets on any given night. He noted that Picton often stayed up well into the night, sometimes going for late-night walks, and he would slaughter pigs right before going to bed. And then not shower, because remember, he was terrified of showering, and climb his crusty ass right in the bed. That was disgusting enough, but perhaps the most disturbing information to come out of this particular meeting was when the informant described eating a meal Willie Picton had served him. He claimed the meat came from what he referred to as a special freezer on the farm. He went on to say that all the other freezers had typical items in them, wrapped in a standard meatpacking fashion. But this freezer? The items were wrapped in black plastic bags. And the meat he was served? He said it was light in color and very stringy. 
the informant had come to believe that he had been fed human flesh by Willie Picton that night on the farm. Of course, all of this information led investigators back to question Lynn Ellingson again. She had repeated the story to friends and acquaintances multiple times. But again, when confronted by officers, she denied everything. Time ticked on and everything was relatively quiet. There was an obvious slowdown in the pattern of how many women were vanishing. Investigators were still talking to their informant and watching Willie Picton. But that surveillance would soon come to an abrupt end. According to the file review, on August 6, 1999, while police were tailing Willie, he picked up a female child from her residence and took her to the local KFC restaurant. Officers observed Picton tickling the child in his vehicle. This was obviously extremely concerning, so an RCMP officer stopped Willie to question him. He said that there was an anonymous complaint. Picton and the child were separated, and the minor was interviewed alone. She told the officer that Willie was a good friend of her mother's and denied that anything inappropriate was going on. The officer advised Willie to take the little girl home, and he agreed. However, that's not what he did. Instead, he was heading in the direction of his own home. Police stopped him again when he got too close for comfort to the Picton farm. Willie was clearly agitated, but the officer calmed him down and took the child home to her mother. When the officer returned the child, the mother stated that she, quote, was not the least concerned with the child's safety and relayed that maybe the police should concern themselves with real crime. The mother of the child was none other than Gina Houston. There's a clip of Gina Houston that can be seen on the documentary The Pig Farmer, in which she recounts just how close Willie and her minor daughter were. She's sitting there in her home holding several stuffed animals. She claims Willie bought her daughter when she was a child. She talks about Willie's childlike spirit and how he always bought stuffed animals for her children. She picks up a yellow bear wearing a t-shirt that was a gift from Willie Picton. Gina fondly remembers when it had a voice box and laughed as she said the bear's chuckle sounded just like Willie's and that her daughter affectionately referred to it as her Willie Bear. She then goes on to show another gift from Willie, a pink stuffed pig. She laughs again as she squeezes and it makes pig noises. This documentary was filmed after Willie Picton's conviction, after all the details about the brutal murder of 49 women. And this bitch is over here giggling about stuffed animals her children received as gifts from a known serial killer. I mean, honestly, read the room, Gina. Anyhow, the surveillance was a bust. Officers were sure that Willie now knew they had been following him, so they backed off. Investigators focused their attention on getting more information out of the informant. And on August 10, 1999, he disclosed a new detail. He told investigators that another friend of Willie's had disclosed to him that he believed Willie Picton was putting body parts in 45-gallon drums and later transporting them to an unknown recycling plant. 
That same day and at the same time Lynn Ellingson was also questioned. And once again, and for the 45th hundredth time, she denied the story about the woman in the barn. A few days later, she agreed to take a polygraph. But on the date the test was scheduled, she advised that she wasn't going to be taking it on advice of her counsel. This began to cause yet another rift among investigators on the case. Some thought Lynn was lying when she told her friends back then, and others believed she was lying now. The tension amongst the team was mounting. On September 1, 1999, RCMP investigators went over to Willie's house to have a little chat, but he was nowhere to be found so they left planning to come back at a later date. But before they could return, at about 9 p.m. that night, Willie Picton called one of the investigators and told him that he wanted to speak to him to clear the air. Arrangements were made for the next day, but when investigators called him back that following morning, he said he wasn't available and would meet later that night. But the investigator wasn't available that night, and so they played this game until September 22nd. Yeah, a whole 21 days later. It was then that Picton agreed to do an interview in his trailer, but investigators said it had to take place at the RCMP office. Willie asked the investigator to call his brother to make the arrangements. When they spoke to Dave Picton, he advised that the weather was too good to do an interview that day and they should wait until a rainy day because he and Willie needed to take advantage of the dry weather. Willie Picton literally invited investigators into his home where claims had already been made that women's clothing, IDs, and personal items were all over the place. An informant had just informed them that there were possible body parts stored in freezers on the property, and they said, nope, no thanks. Let that sink in for just a moment before I piss you off further. For the next four months, quote, no further substantive investigation was to occur. All this information, all this buildup, an offer from the prime suspect to come in and talk, and nothing. The investigation stalled yet again. By November of 1999, the Vancouver police were finally, after all these years, ready to publicly admit that it was very likely that all the missing women were the work of a serial killer. Media spokesperson Ann Drennan, who had been so adamant in the past that there was zero evidence of a serial killer, was quoted in Elm Street magazine saying, The police now realized that there were too many missing women for it to be a coincidence, and acknowledged that there could be one or more serial killers. It was about freaking time. But that admission in the media wasn't enough to stop yet another woman from vanishing. Things had been rather quiet while investigators were hot on Willie, but now with the investigation stalling, another woman disappeared. According to On the Farm, 43-year-old Wendy Crawford disappeared on November 27, 1999. Wendy was born on April 21, 1956. She had four siblings and spent most of her life in Chilliwack. As a teen, she experimented with drugs. 
She had two children at a young age, a son and a daughter, and struggled to make ends meet as a single mom with debilitating illnesses. You see, Wendy suffered with both diabetes and Crohn's disease, and due to her situation, she couldn't properly care for herself in the way she should have. She had constant pain and was always exhausted. However, despite her many struggles, Wendy remained in constant contact with her family, friends, and her kids. They always knew where she was until they just didn't. The circumstances surrounding the disappearance of Wendy Crawford aren't well documented, short of an account from a teenage neighbor that was posted in a note online and documented and on the farm. According to the neighbor, she last saw Wendy while she was on the porch grabbing a leash so she could take her dog and check the mail. She watched as Wendy got into a truck with what she described as an ugly-looking man. After the truck pulled away, she never saw Wendy again. But she did witness multiple nurses coming to Wendy's trailer. Due to Wendy's health struggles, she needed medication. The caregivers were there to check on Wendy and provide her with her medicine. And they had been by the house multiple times with no response. They became concerned and the police were called for a welfare check. When officers arrived, the neighbor walked down to tell police what she had seen. She began to tell the officer about the last time she had seen Wendy, but according to her, she was quickly cut off and the officer said, You're just a kid. You don't even know what you're talking about. The neighbor went on to write, To this day, it hurts so bad to think that maybe if I had just stood up and said what I knew, maybe we wouldn't be reading her name under the headlines. An official missing persons report was filed by Wendy Crawford's family on December 14, 1999. But they felt investigators didn't take it seriously. And further, that the media had portrayed Wendy in a negative way. Her sister wrote a letter to the Vancouver Sun stating, My sister did not have a history of disappearing. She had a family to raise. But as the kids grew and Wendy was free to roam, she would go off and do her thing. But someone, be it her children or other family members, would usually have a basic idea of her whereabouts. Yes, she did travel the streets of Vancouver. She owned a mobile home and paid pad rental. The most important issue in this case is the two beautiful children she did her best to raise with what cards life dealt her. Reporters never walked a mile in the shoes of any of these women who suffered tragic deaths, but you quickly label them prostitutes and drug addicts. My sister raised her children on a welfare budget, and anyone who has experienced that can understand that such a minimal amount of money does not always pay the bills and put enough food into their mouths every month. Yes, my sister sold her body on the streets. However, something is drastically wrong when you can call my sister a prostitute for trying to feed her children, while other participants in this act are men who keep their good standing in society. Are they not prostitutes as well? She was a sister and an aunt, as well as a great aunt and a friend. She was not on the streets every day selling her body, and she did not take drugs all the time. Something is drastically wrong when you can call my sister a prostitute for trying to feed her children. A-freaking-men. 
On December 7, 1999, Constable Schenner, seemingly annoyed with the stall in the investigation, requested a full-time sergeant be assigned to the Missing Women Task Force. But that request was quickly denied just two days later, on December 9th. And just weeks after that denial, another woman vanished. According to On the Farm, two days after Christmas on December 27, 1999, Jennifer Firminger disappeared. Jennifer Firminger was born on October 22, 1971. Her biological parents put her up for adoption, and when she was a toddler, she was adopted by a couple in St. Catharines, Ontario. Growing up, she was happy. She loved fishing with her dad and hanging out with her two best friends. From elementary school on, she was part of a group of three friends, who everyone referred to as the Three Musketeers. Her friend would recall to Alison Ald of the Canadian Press that Jennifer was pretty, bright, and talented, and that she loved to sketch and paint. As she became a teenager, things began to change, and the once happy-go-lucky girl became withdrawn and depressed. She felt out of place at school and wanted to know why her parents had given her up for adoption. She moved in with her friend Kelly and her parents, and the two spent plenty of time shopping and laughing together. She got good grades in school, and everything was going great. After a falling out with Kelly, she moved out and the friends lost touch. She dropped out of school in 10th grade, and things really began to spiral out of control. By 1989, she found herself living on the downtown east side. She bounced from place to place as many of the women living downtown did. But by 1999, she was living with a man named Noel Paris. He was the last one to see her alive. The last time Noel saw Jennifer was on December 27, 1999. She was standing on the corner of Cordove and Dunleavy in the downtown east side where she often worked. He watched as a policeman stopped and talked with her a few moments and then left. A few minutes later, another vehicle pulled up and Jennifer was gone. She never came home. However, he didn't immediately report her missing because it was common for her to take off for short periods of time. But as the months passed, with no word from her, he grew more and more concerned. He finally went to the police to report Jennifer missing in March of 2000. It would be another seven months in October before her name was added to the missing women list. Just a few days after Jennifer Firminger disappeared, it was New Year's Eve again, and that meant another wild party at Piggy's Palace, Good Time Society. However, this party would be the last. According to Willie Picton, as he would later recall to a police officer, this party was bigger than parties in previous years with over 1,700 people packed into the palace, which was designed to hold about 300. The party would be shut down by the fire marshal. Willie recalled to the officer, It was the biggest bust I've ever seen. There were 50 or 60 cars of cops. That was it, no more. They say they can't have a nightclub. There's no nightclubs in the city of Poco. They don't want any nightclubs in the city. Willie was right. Piggy Palace Good Time Society had long been an issue with the city of Port Coquitlam, and this time, they were going to make sure to shut it down for good. The RCMP secured a court order stating that police could arrest and remove anyone 
attending public events on the property. And further, Piggy's Palace Good Time Society lost its nonprofit status for failing to provide proper financial statements. And with that, it was over. There were no more good times to be had at the society. It's a possibility that the palace getting shut down may have played a role in what happened next. Perhaps Willie was pissed off that the investigation had affected his cash flow. Piggy's Palace was a huge moneymaker for the Picton brothers, and they were less than thrilled when it was finally closed down. Just weeks later, Willie Picton would willingly walk into the RCMP office in Port Coquitlam in an attempt to clear his name. According to the file review, on January 19th, Willie Picton strolled through the doors and was questioned by Constable York and Fox. But Willie wasn't alone. He had brought his BFF, Gina Houston, along and refused to speak with investigators without her present. According to Gina Houston, as she spoke on the Pig Farm documentary, it was a six-and-a-half-hour interview, one where Willie gave investigators an open invitation to come to the farm whenever they wanted. He wanted to clear his name so police would move on and leave him alone. It was a total shit show, and that's putting it very mildly. No new information was obtained, and nothing was gained from the interview. Investigator York would later state, The interview was a cluster. Fox should have never been in there. We should have coerced Houston not to be in there. It was useless, produced nothing, went on longer than it should have for what we got out of it. It should have been Pollock and I doing it, and we should have planned better, but he wasn't available. It should have been planned better. I look back, and I know I flubbed it. And Gina wasn't lying when she said Willie offered for police to search his property. Constable York went on to explain why they didn't take Picton up on his offer. Quote, I was told that if we found anything, we'd need a warrant. Everyone was so leery about getting on board with the investigation, worried about his rights. There was a real lack of experience out there in Coquitlam. And when Walters got involved, it really shut it down. It appears the VPD and those working Project Amelia weren't even made aware of the interview until months later. And the investigation would stall further. Constable York explained. After that, not a lot happened. All these other files came in, and they wouldn't give any priority to the Picton file. HQ, Special O, wouldn't give us any surveillance. We couldn't convince Unsolved to take it. Unsolved Homicide thought Ellingson was a storyteller. We believed her information because the average person doesn't know human fat is yellow. There was the Anderson thing. There were too many loose ends. The important thing was the Anderson case that never went forward. The info from Lapine's informant that the average person couldn't know, women's IDs and personal belongings from other females there in Picton's place. I think the biggest problem was that Walters convinced the polygraph guy that Ellingson was a big storyteller. But there were too many things that Ellingson knew about. That he would wear a wig. That he would use her or Houston to get women into cars because they wouldn't get in the car otherwise. 
Picton told me he still saw Ellingson, and he continued to give her money. And he said she didn't tell me anything anyhow. And I asked what was she supposed to not tell me, and he got mad. He further stated there were a lot of things that we should have followed up on, but we couldn't get approval. As it turned out, although Lynn Ellingson had repeatedly denied seeing a woman hanging from a hook in the barn, there was one detail she gave that had stuck in the back of the minds of investigators since the words had left her mouth. And that, my friends, was a comment she had made about human fat being yellow. How would she have known that if she hadn't seen it herself? You've seen animal fat in the grocery store, and it's typically a bright white color. But that is not the case for fat in the human body. It's actually yellow. And the reason? According to the Cleveland Clinic, it's due to the fact that humans can't quickly metabolize yellow carotene, found in vegetables and grains. So it makes its way to our fat cells and is stored there. But how did Lynn know that? And why was she even bringing up human fat? The disagreements and rifts between investigators working the missing women's cases had gotten so severe that some of the investigators refused to even sit in the same room together. Willie Picton was certain that Lynn Ellingson had been talking, and he had a solution for that problem. But all that will have to wait until next week because, unfortunately, we are out of time. Stevie Cameron's book on the farm, Robert William Picton and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women, can be purchased on Amazon or pretty much wherever you get your books. It is wonderfully written and details every aspect of this case. I'll put a link in the show notes. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. I'll be bringing you part number 12 of the Pig Farmer series next week, and I can't wait. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.